Hey everybody, Pastor Chris here. Thanks for listening to our Market Street Podcast. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope today's message helps you in your walk with Jesus. For more ways to connect, visit us at marketstreetchurch.org. We've been talking about making a U-turn in our lives, and one of the things that I've been thinking about is this issue of authority. Now, I know that this is probably a topic that's as popular as paying taxes, but let's face it. If you're going to really become the person, you know, the man or the woman that, that God meant you to be, you have to accept the authority of God. And that means you have to accept the authority of the Word of God. And the Word of God has a lot to say about authority. You know, there's lots of different types of authority. There is this temporal authority right here on earth where people have civil power. We have leaders. They're authorities. You know, if you call the police, some people will say the authorities have arrived, right? They have policing power. If you go hear a professor speak, he has authority because he has a PhD and he has credibility, right? And then there is this supernatural thing of authority where domains of heaven, apparently, where even demons have domains that are set aside throughout the world. And this area of sort of mystical authority that we see spoken of often in the Bible, we're going to touch on a couple of these. And the reason for this should be obvious. I think pretty much all of us here are American. We are among the most anti-authoritarian people you will ever meet. We had ourselves a revolution. We've been known to throw tea in water. Okay. We don't like anyone being the boss of us, right? You're not the boss of me. You ever hear your kids say that to you? You're not the boss of me. And yet, if we never submit to authority, then we have chaos. If we never submit to spiritual authority, then there's nothing to base our faith and our lives on. And this is the dilemma. How do we take a group of people like me, who is the sultan of snarkiness, put them in an environment with a hierarchy, and somehow not pull your hair out as a leader because you've got me sitting in a meeting pointing out little problems here and there, or making you know, silly expressions with my face, or texting sarcastic comments to my colleagues while like, yeah, we tried this eight years ago and that really worked well. I mean, it's a nightmare, right? Across the board, whether you're talking about in the workplace or we're talking about in the spiritual realm, it's a nightmare. And have any, anyone noticed that we went through this thing called COVID, that we're in this thing called COVID where we're being asked to do things by authority? How is that working? Right? You know, notice we have this season of civil unrest going on where people are questioning the integrity of the authorities Right? We had an election, which was very contentious, and now we're heavily divided around the issue of authority. This is a big, big deal. We're never going to reach our potential as Christians until we come to grips with this issue of authority and what it really means and what the Word says. So I want to take us to a story that many of you have probably heard 
multiple occasions. Matthew 8, 513. Do you remember this, the faith of the centurion? Everybody's heard about it, the centurion who comes before Jesus. I want to read it to you, and then I want to unpack it a little bit. Matthew 8, 5 through 13. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion approached him and appealed to him, saying, Lord, my servant is laying at home paralyzed, and he's suffering dreadfully. And Jesus said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion said in reply, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Only say the word, and my servant will be healed. And here's the part that oftentimes is not read. For I, too, am a person subject to authority, with soldiers subject to me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And to another, come here. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now watch Jesus' reaction. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Amen. I say to you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banquet in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom meaning those Pharisees and Jews that one day will put him on the cross and deny him, will be driven out into outer darkness where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, you may go. As you have believed, let it be done for you. And at that very hour, his servant was healed. Now, we could read that story over and over again and say, wow, that's cool. That, you know, that soldier was, was really blessed by Jesus. Man, there's so much in this that I want you to capture. Capernaum was a mini Rome. This city was being built by Herod to rival anything in the Roman Empire. It was the envy of the world. They were pouring tons of money into it, marble works dock works, temples, the whole shebang. It was a place that everyone wanted to go and live and be. There were tons of people hired from Israel to do the work. In fact, it's, it's theorized that many carpenters were cross-trained into doing stonework that perhaps even Joseph and his family did work during this because it was a huge undertaking. It took years and years to do. So Jesus was quite familiar with this city. A centurion is what we would call today a captain. Okay? He commanded a hundred men. There's a garrison in this city because this is a very important city. Now, he's a Roman, right? professional soldier. He's basically a fascist, right? an occupier, an enemy of the Israeli people. Their thing is they visit new countries, crush people, and take their stuff. Right? That is the Roman Empire's M.O. Now they've crushed Israel. Question, why in the world would Jesus want to heal the servant of an enemy of the people of Israel? You ever think about that? Another question. Did you notice how culturally sensitive the centurion was? So you've got to wonder, 
why was the centurion so respectful of Jesus? I have a theory, and the theory is, is that if they're in charge of security, they're concerned any time a charismatic figure comes on the scene and begins preaching. Why? Because there's an insurgency going on right now in Israel with groups assassinating Roman officials, raiding and creating mayhem. They're called the Zealots. They had many groups. You can look it up on your own when you get time. There's one group called the Sicarii. They were known for their knives that they used. So in the middle of all of occupied Israel, you've got these zealots, and you've got the occupying army, and here is this centurion who's probably getting reports about a new potential threat that came into town. And what does the report say? Well, boss, he talks about peace, being orderly, and paying taxes. Okay, works for me. Oh, by the way, there's this strange thing happening. What's that? Uh, he touches people and they get healed. Really? Oh, yeah, and, and like, he commands demons to leave. And the Jews are really not really happy about him, but the people kind of love him. And I got to tell you, boss, I've seen him do some of these miracles, and it's amazing. So, kind of give you an idea, he's coming to this situation probably already with a good idea that there's something really incredible about this individual. And he must love this servant because he humbles himself. The centurion, right, one of the elite, humbles himself before Jesus. And then he says something very culturally intelligent. Jesus, I know that as a Gentile, it would be a source of great embarrassment for you. And in fact, it would be against temple law for you to come into my home. That's why he says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. Because culturally, that would be absolutely a disaster, right? It's just not done. There was no mixing. The Jews were the chosen people of God. They despised people who especially were occupiers. And so the centurion shows not just faith in the fact that Jesus has supernatural power, but he shows sensitivity and he shows respect to Jesus' authority. And what he says is very important because Jesus says, literally, I am amazed, quote. Meaning, I've been traveling throughout Israel and I've been shown terrible disrespect by people. People haven't acknowledged me at all, and yet here is this Gentile who's coming and showing respect, and he gets it. He gets it because he commands men. And he thinks, I get it, Jesus. You have supernatural authority. You can just command this, this illness to go away. I believe in you. And he does. And we have this story. And now we have a little bit more of the backstory to understand it. But did you notice that Jesus also prophesizes, truly, truly, I say to you, people are going to come from the east and the west. Which people? Gentiles? Right? While the kingdom, meaning the people who were originally part of this great movement, they're not going to enjoy that great heavenly banquet because they have denied the authority of Christ. Right? That's a very important point. It's the first time we see Jesus really stepping out and talking about that his mission to redeem us is more than just for the Jews. 
going outside of the Abrahamic groups and going to everyone, right? And it's important that we understand this because what Jesus did and what the centurion did was take a risk. Right? They're going up against a different type of authority. What kind of authority? Temple authority. In Matthew 21, 23, Jesus is interrogated by the uh, rabbis, and, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you that authority? So Jesus is in the temple, and he's sitting down, and he's teaching. And the way Jesus taught was through stories. He didn't follow some sort of ritualistic, memorized, you know, one, two, three, follow me kind of formula. He related to people. He had a radical doctrine of love and grace that he taught. And people loved it because it was approachable. It was something that meant something to their lives. They could directly relate to it. But do you know what rabbinic authorities saw? Who is this guy? He's not wearing the uniform. You know, they had these fantastic robes and the phylactery on the head and the big plate with the gems. He didn't go to our seminars. He hasn't paid his dues. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is coming in here and teaching? You know, you didn't graduate from our program. You're not one of us. Who gave you the authority to do this? Isn't it interesting how authority becomes more and more of an issue. It can be used to help us to be disciplined, but it also can be used to suppress us, right? Bad authority suppresses. Good authority brings order. Wrong turns come when we put our faith in hierarchies and structures that are designed to maintain their own power and wealth rather than in the redeeming works of Jesus Christ. When we forget our purpose and we submit to traditions and big buildings and footprints of influence, we forget what the true mission is. It's Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And too often today, we substitute false authority when we should be just looking to the true authority of Christ and the simplicity and the beauty of his message. Now, I am probably one of the biggest violators of authority I know. I have literally driven managers to retire at work. I had one manager just look at me exasperated one day and he said, we would love to lay you off, but you're too competent. In fact, one person said, you're too valuable to fire and you're too insubordinate to promote. I don't know what to do with you. And I am just a typical American. I am snarky and I whine and I'm ungrateful and I would hate to manage myself. And this is despite the fact that the United States Air Force did its best to break me. In 1982, 
I graduated from college, and I felt like, you know, I should really give back. My country means a lot to me. My family immigrated to the United States in 1950s. Um, we came from war-torn Italy. I had the stories talked about the oppression. and We were prospering in this country, and I thought, you know what? I went to college. I should do something for this country. So me, a mama's boy, only male. Mom had me at 40. I was the last shot for a name bearer for the family. God bless mom, 40 years old, brought me into the world, which meant I was a prince. I had to do nothing. My sisters to this day are bitter. Kath, I know you're listening. I know you're bitter. Get over it. <laughs> my mom made my bed. I swear to you, it didn't take more than my feet hitting the ground into my fuzzy little slippers that mama came and made the bed for me. She would have breakfast waiting for me. She would have a lunch the size of one of her shopping bags that I would take with me to school. I was the envy of everyone. I had Tupperware full of food. Big, thick pieces of fresh Italian bread with all delectable meats, little olives on the side, cut up vegetables, a good juice or two. Yes, I was a prince. And I went to Lackland Air Force Base. Do we have that slide? Just want to show. Yes. I am the grinning idiot right here. This man, who I at the time thought was the Antichrist, is Staff Sergeant Fatahue Winston, who told me later that I was one of the most memorable recruits he ever had the misfortune of, of training. Now, I came in knowing nothing other than I chose a branch of the service that doesn't camp outside. That was my criteria. I do not sleep on the ground. The prince has spoken. First day in, I meet good cop. Good cop is Master Sergeant Rodriguez, who is retiring. He is the dorm cop. How you doing? I'm Sergeant Rodriguez. I'm here to help you. You guys get down. You come to me and talk, all right? Everything is going to be great. You're going to get through this. You're going to love wearing the uniform. Wow, this is great. Like, oh, wow, look at all these open bay barracks. I mean, I have to sleep in the open with all these guys? Like, oh. So I have a question later, and I decide to roll in to see Sergeant Rodriguez, but Sergeant Rodriguez is not there. The Antichrist is there. I walk into his office, and I say, hey, Sarge, I have a question. All of a sudden, there is an explosion of black fury. This guy was the skinny, meanest, meanest black guy I had ever met in my life. His pants were perfectly creased. His shirts were starched so that you could open an envelope with them. And he had these horrible, demonic little metal plates on the front of his shiny shoes that made a clip, clip, clip that would terrorize you at night because you knew he was coming down the hall and something could happen. He gets up and says, how dare you come into my office? You think this is your home? What's wrong with you? Are you stupid or were you just dropped on your head as a child? And I'm trying to process this. Like, how do I answer that question? Because both is a negative. On the one hand, I'm stupid. On the other hand, I was dropped on my head. Anyway, he goes crazy on me, and he's poking me in the chest. He actually moves me across the entire barracks, poking me in the chest. And Listen, I'm a trained communicator. I graduated with a degree in journalism and public relations. 
So I just smile. I just keep, I'm going to smile. I'm going to diffuse this situation. I'm going to use my college psychology. Sarge, what's wrong? Why are you so upset? Oh, you think you can talk to me, boy? And he's punching me in the chest with his fingers like, I think I'm going to die. I think I've made a terrible mistake. It was a terrible night. This continues, the breaking of my psychology. Now I find out I've got to be with a bunch of people from all over the country, most of which, to be honest with you, I would never want in my home or be friends with. I mean, they come from all walks of life. They come from, you know, the fields to the big city. And my bunkmate was a kid from Chicago. And growing up in Detroit, I was on one side of 8 Mile. We had no interaction with people of color, none. And so this kid from Chicago is this terrific black guy who's into music from a group called Parliament, which I thought was a British government structure, but apparently it was a music group. And he and I are trying to get along, and we make a deal because we have to cooperate. We have to help each other get ready, make our beds. We're like teammates, right? And I, we know nothing about each other, and he's suspicious of me, and I'm suspicious of him. And we get to become great friends. I meet some great Hispanic guys. I meet people from all over the world, and I realize, man, they're just like me. They're just being terrorized and broken by this horrible human being called Sergeant Winston. We come close. We start learning that it's not about me, and I can't do it without help from my buddies. I start learning that I'm not that important, but collectively, we can get through this thing. We can do something good. I start learning that there's an art to getting up at 4 in the morning before your bunk is thrown over by Sergeant Winston. You know, there's an art to it. And then before long, I start getting responsibilities. But there was a struggle. There was a struggle. And when we finally got our hair all cut off, we were forced to send a letter home to mom. And he told us what to write. So we're all sitting there writing exactly what Staff Sergeant Winston said, something like, Hi, Mom and Dad. I am doing well. They are feeding me three meals a day. I am learning valuable life skills and stuff like that, you know? Well, my mom gets the picture, and she cries for two days because all she sees is this miserable, hollow-cheeked kid with no hair who looks like he's a, a refugee or a prisoner of war somewhere. And so she compels my sister Grace, yes, Grace, I know you're watching too, to write a letter to Sergeant Winston. <laughs> Dear Sergeant Winston, my brother was a mama's boy, and he never had to do anything at home, and we're really concerned about him because he looks unhappy in his picture. Please go easy on him. Change scenes. We're on the squadron deck at parade rest. Clip, 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 clip. Turns around pulls a letter out of his pocket. What is this? Dear Sergeant Winston, <laughs> my brother was a mama's boy. He reads the letter to my flight. And then he comes over to me, and he bends over with that Smokey the Bear hat, and he pokes me in the chest, and he says, you're going to be my special project. <laughs> I swore if I ever got home alive, I was going to kill my sister. You see, authority doesn't come natural to many of us, especially when you're a spoiled little princeling. And let's face it, for the last few generations, 
we've been pretty easy on our kids, right? We've been pretty easy on them. And, and, it, and it's gotten to the point now where we're not just easy on them, but some kids don't have any concept of authority at all. I mean, the truth of the matter is, we went from questioning authority in my generation to defying authority. Are you with me? How can you be the man or woman that Christ intended you to be unless you can embrace at some level authority? Because authority extends from the civil world to the spiritual world. And after a while, we begin to question everything. We question the Bible. We question salvation. We question the divinity of Christ. We question the need to have any moral laws at all. How can you be your best when there's no baseline anymore? So, I did my own little study, and I found there were 23 Bible verses just about being excellent at work. I mean, work is one of those areas where people put us under authority, unless you own your own business. And then the people you owe money to as a business owner are the authority over you, right? And the question I have for you is, as a Christian in the workplace, are you excellent? You should be. If you're really following any of those 23 verses, the wisdom in it, you should be one of the finest employees in that firm. You should be dedicated, you should be respectful, and you should be grateful. I find myself constantly having to check my heart. And I know there's some colleagues who are probably screaming, hypocrisy, hypocrisy, who are watching this right now. And they're right. I've been hypocritical. I've been ungrateful as an employer. I've been critical just to be critical at times. How does that reflect positively on Christ to my peers? If I'm late, or I'm not giving my best, or I'm constantly undermining the authority of our leaders, how am I showing Christian character? I would submit to you I'm not. And, and if you're not being excellent at work and dedicated and respectful and grateful, you're not showing respect to the authority of those who pay you. How about civil authorities? So some years ago, back in the 90s, there was a spate of violent carjackings going on between Detroit, and then it kind of infiltrated into some of the suburbs like Southfield. And my friend Curtis, African-American guy, um, had his car in the shop. And as a salesperson, I had a desk on the right seat of my car. And so Curtis, when I picked him up, had to sit in the back. Now, I'm in a suit, white guy in a suit, in a nice car. Curtis is wearing a hoodie because he wasn't ready for work yet. He's just picking up his car. So we're driving down the road in Southfield when the blue lights flash on. And I pull over, and I'm thinking, okay, what did I do? I don't think I missed anything, red light or anything. So I pull over. Another car pulls up in front of us, one behind, one in front. Police officer comes out of the car with his handgun drawn on the one side. I'm seeing this in my peripheral vision, and I'm getting a bad feeling. Another officer comes up parallel to the door, and he asks me to step out of the car. I step out of the car. He says, are you okay, sir? I said, 
yeah, fine. Are you sure? You okay? And he looks in the back seat. There's Curtis in his hoodie. Yeah. Well, what's going on? I said, well, I'm just taking a coworker to the shop to pick up his car. He said, oh, okay. Well, I'm, you know, sorry, but, you know, there have been some carjackings. It just didn't look right. Now, I want you to know the two officers were African-American. Okay? So we get back in the car, and there's awkward silence, and I'm, my heart's beating. Curtis is just devastated. And Curtis said something like this. Now you know what it's like to be me. Now you know what it's like to be me. Now, mind you, the situation was dire, right? They were violent. There were people being shot and having their cars taken from them, okay? Police were at a high level of, of awareness. And they were just trying to do their job. But my heart broke for Curtis. My heart broke for him. Um, years later, in fact, not too long ago, I was driving on the expressway, and I was a little bit too exuberant. Okay, I was speeding really fast. And I got pulled over. Lights go on. And I look around, and there's like, there's not any good place to pull over. So I keep going. And I'm looking, and it's like, well, oh, that's a pretty lousy place, too. I keep going. And finally, I get to an exit, and I said, oh, okay. I exit off. Well, I pull off into this parking lot. Trooper comes out, and he is mad. Why didn't you stop when I signaled you? I said, I'm really sorry, officer, but I was concerned for your safety. There was no place that you could be without being partly exposed to traffic. He looked like he was going to cry. He said, have a nice day. And he walked away. Why? Do you realize the kind of garbage that these civil servants have to take every day? That almost every encounter they have with the public is negative? I actually cared enough about him and his safety, and that hit him. He was so shocked that anyone would care in that moment that he gave me a pass. Now, I'm not telling you this as a strategy <laughs> to get out of tickets. I'm just telling you I showed respect to his authority. In that previous scenario, had Curtis got out of his car and started shouting, he could have been mistaken as an aggressor in that moment. It could have ended in tragedy, right? Curtis was a smart guy, and I'm sad for his circumstances, but he used good judgment. Um, we're in a world that is evil and full of broken people. The people who are protecting us and serving us out there they have terrible odds against them. I realize that things aren't fair sometimes. I realize that things just aren't done perfectly. Can we agree as Christians to start showing compassion and love towards those people who keep us safe, please? Let's use wisdom. Now, I wish I didn't have to mention this next one um, because I'm really guilty of this, and that is towards elected officials and showing respect towards those who have been put in authority over us. Uh, I have a very sarcastic sense of humor, and I've been known to send memes and create memes about politicians, and give people nicknames, um, 
but honestly, this is not godly. All right? That behavior is not godly. Um, individuals who have been put in place have been put there for a reason. And God was not surprised by the conclusion of any elections. God chooses bad leaders sometimes to chastise and direct us and move us in a direction. God chooses good leaders sometimes to help us, direct us, and encourage us. They are all appointed by God. How can you say that, Tony? Well, good thing I've got the Bible handy. 1 Peter 13, 25. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether the king, a.k.a. the president, as the supreme authority, or the governors, who are set up to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should what? You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Not my words. It was Peter. Blame him. Remember where your citizenship is, my friend. I realize a lot of us are really patriotic. I'm a patriotic guy. But my citizenship is in heaven. I happen to be living here in the area for a while. Don't know how long. God does. And I do my business here, and I worship here, and I serve my fellow man here at this church. But my residence is only temporary here. I have a different zip code in heaven. Don't get so caught up in nationalism that you forget who you truly belong to. Remember, we're aliens here. At the moment, we have a pretty good deal. We live in a country that's pretty tolerant. We may have some complaints, I get it. But we have incredible freedoms. Don't abuse it. Don't do things that will bring discord, or bring authorities down on us when we already have enough problems of our own today. Last aspect of authority I want to talk about is in 1 Thessalonians 5.12-13. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. There was a time that being a pastor was one of the most respected places in society. There was like doctor, pastor. It was like right there. If you looked at some of the polls that go back, um, actually not even more than 40 years ago in some cases, you'll see that those were esteemed. The role of the church used to be a place that was held high in regard. People wanted to support their churches. They wanted prayer in public forums. Because of the culture of opposing authority, first questioning authority and then later rebelling against authority, we have seen the relationship of society and the church really decay to a dangerous point. 
you have to know that our full-time ministry staff here and our volunteers, uh, they're doing important work. And they're, they're doing it under adversity, especially right now with COVID. As Christians, if we're going to be true to what it says in Thessalonians, we really need to show great respect and love and appreciation to the people who serve every day. And I want you all to join me in some applause. They see you much like the police see you. Generally speaking, not at the best times in your lives. Sometimes when you're very ill. Sometimes at the graveside, comforting, grieving people. Right? Few are the days where you get to dedicate people to Christ and dedicate babies and marry people. Common are the days when people have just lost their jobs or their spouses left them. These workers, what they're doing is very important. They deserve respect. And more than that, did you know that they have spiritual authority? Did you know that they are held accountable by God more harshly than we are? That when they stand before God, the words that they've said, the actions that they've taken, how they stewarded the churches that were put within their span of control, all of those things they will be held accountable for. They will also be rewarded if they've been good servants. But understand, with that comes spiritual authority. They're speaking the word to you. So when pastor says, we need to step up our game, we need to be more involved in our own development, we need to be involved in community with each other in small groups, we need to be um, volunteering more together, He's saying that with spiritual authority. God, through his Holy Spirit, is anointing him and empowering him to make sure that the church is functioning at a level that can fill the Great Commission. I'm asking you to honor that spiritual commitment. I'm asking you to understand that spiritual authority is a real thing. There are consequences. And our pastor is trying to help us all avoid the eternal consequences of not following Christ. Um, I'd like to close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm grateful for this church and I'm grateful for this country. Lord, thank you for the freedoms that we have. Help us to be grateful. Help our hearts, Lord, to be convicted that authority needs to be respected. Help us to oppose, Lord, within the law, abuses of authority, and help us to support those areas, Lord, and have the wisdom to ensure that society functions as it should, that our church prospers in our mission. And Lord, more than anything else, help us as we continue to take these U-turns in our lives so that we can be our best version of ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.